I invite you to open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, if you will. We can uh, we continue in our road, on our road through Romans. And unfortunately, unfortunately last week, the, uh, the recording didn't work out as good. And at this time, I'd like to apologize to those joining online if you tried to join online last week. The, uh, the wrong link was clicked, and so you might have received a message that um, there was a meeting already in progress, and so you are unable to join. So my apologies. But at the same time, it's like the recording didn't go as planned. So what I'm going to do... So at the same time, I'm thankful that we only went through one verse, actually. <laughs> I don't know whether that was a God thing or not. Um, but I'm going to start do, going to bring a quick review from what we covered last week. And I'm just going to give a heads up. Um, for some of you, this might be too much. It might be too deep. This is like the meat, what, what Paul refers to as the meat of, um, of the Word. When we first become Christians, usually we only can handle milk, as like a baby can only handle milk. They can't handle solids. And so Peter uses that analogy, actually, when he refers to us receiving the Word. This is quite meaty. And so for some of you, it might go over your heads. It depends really on where you're at and how much exposure you've had to God's Word, how how much time you've studied it, particularly when you look at this passage of Scripture. We're in Romans chapter 8, and at the moment we're covering verses 29 to 30. 29 to 30, and um, the title that I've given this morning's message is a question. Once again, I like to do questions, and this hopefully I'd like you to answer this question by the end of, not necessarily the end of the message, or really, I actually implore you to do your own study of the passage, and then come up with your own answer. Um, don't just take my word for it. Draw your own conclusions. But the question is this. Is it about us or the Israelites? Is what we're reading today about us, as lots of people think it is, or is poor Paul just referring to the Israelites? That's the question. Last week, uh, these are the verses that we're going through, um, if you don't have your Bibles with you. It's for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, to become conformed into the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Verse 30, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. They're the two verses. Last week, I asked the question, is Paul referring to here, foreknown, foreseen, or foreordained? Another word you could put there instead of foreordained, you could say foreloved. That's a common um, word that people use. There are too many interpretations that we went through. There's one that follows a Reformed theology and one that follows a non-Reformed theology. And just so to make sure that we are on the same page, if you're unfamiliar with what that theology actually means, 
Um, I actually just refer to this. This is the simplest way of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Probably all of you have memorized it off by heart, but there's two interpretations to this passage. And this is, distinguishes us. Um, uh, well, actually, but by the way, uh, we're, we're a Baptist church, but Baptists don't actually have a distinctive between Reformed and non-Reformed. So within the Baptists, particularly the, the union that we're a part of, there are, there are a mixture of churches that are Reformed, um, and there are uh, a number of churches that are non-Reformed. And um, those pastors or leaders who are Reformed, for instance, not all people that go to their churches are non-Reformed, and vice versa. So Baptists believe that this is a non-essential doctrine to agree and disagree on. But for it's by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. The Reformed interpretation of that verse verses is that faith is a gift. Faith is a gift. That means God has to give you the faith to believe. Um, the non-reformed interpretation of this voice, verse is that no, faith is not a gift. That's our responsibility. Um, the gift is the actually act of salvation. Salvation is a gift. And so salvation is by grace. It's through faith. That's the gift of God. Um, either way, it's not of works. It's nothing that we can contribute towards. It's all what Christ has done for us. With those two theologies becomes two primary interpretations. For those whom he foreknew. Foreknew is the, the word that we all get hung up, hung up on. This is the word that's debated among the two theologies. The word in the Greek is prognosko. And so the meaning really is to formally know in times past or to know beforehand. That's what it actually means. Prognosko, foreknew. So for those whom he foreknew, he did all these things and that's what we're talking about today. So the non-reformed view, they class that knowledge as omniscience. Because God knows absolutely everything in this world, he has no surprises, because he knew who was going to respond to um, uh, Jesus' offer of salvation. Those he predestined to be conformed into the image of son. So it's like a foreseen. Those who God foresaw before even the foundations of the world was, began, them, to them he predestined. The Reformed view, rather, is, takes into account that actually word new, knowledge. And knowledge, because God has knowledge of absolutely every one of us, right? Because he knows everything. Then... Knowledge has to be more than that because God doesn't do this for everyone, does he? God only conforms those into the image of Christ that believe. So it has to be more than omniscience. It has to be a knowledge in that it's an intimate love relationship. So those who God formed an intimate love relationship with, and that means he foreordained it, which means, if, if I'm trying to get, um, in case, you know, all these words, this is uh, Christianese, I'm trying to get as simple as possible. God decided 
even before the foundations of the world, that, for instance, I would have a relationship with him. He decided it. He made it happen. Um, so we're talking about an intimate love relationship. However, there's a view that not many people have heard of, and this is actually the view that I'm, I, I'm actually 100% convinced that this is what Paul is talking about. Again, I could be wrong. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not being proud to the point where um, I, I'm not saying I'm definitely right, but I'm, I'm convinced that this is um, what Paul was talking about, and I'll, I'll present my arguments of, of, of why. But um, we look at the word, knowing in times past, and the word prognosco, by the way, can be used with all those other meanings that we've just talked about. But it can also mean that I knew, for instance, someone in times past, in history, um, that, something was, that something would happen. So I knew. Um, and we're told, uh, I, I think I, I deleted, just for sake of time, um, Acts 26, verses 4 to 5, if you're taking notes. That's an example where uh, Paul is not talking about a love relationship because he's referring to um, the Jews knowing him, how he was the, probably the strictest Jew ever. He was in the strictest sect. He was a Pharisee. And the Jews knew about that. And it's the same word, prognosco. They foreknew. They knew in times past what Paul was like. We go on to look at the, the tenses of the verbs. So when you examine this passage, these, these two verses, just look at the verbs. You'll notice they're all in past tense. They're all in past tense. The question is why? Why? Um, the Reformed interpretation, because they're referring to something that has happened even before the world began, they, they, they believe Paul's writing these words to indicate that that has taken place. Well, one questions them and says, then why is Paul talking in past tense that it's already happened when, you know, we're not even alive yet, and how can this be talking about me? I'm not glorified yet. I, I wasn't justified yet. And so they would respond and say, well, there is, there is a, a, a grammar in the Greek. When, when you look at the Greek language, there's a way to say something in the past, okay, referring to the future, but it's like it's already done. So the Reformed person would say, well, because you have been predestined to believe, it is so secure, your salvation, that it's as good as done. It's as good as finished. And therefore, you can refer it to the past tense. Now, there is, as I said a technique. The name I heard of, um, I can't remember it right now. It's, it's a fancy name. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a type of writing, a 
technique of writing. There is a possibility that some people have done that, that they write like that. You're writing in past tense even though you're referring to the future. It's like it's, it's, it's as good as done. But I've done some more homework on that. And um, there is a, a book here that uh, talks about the grammar of Greek. It's written by a, uh, a, a gentleman by the name of Daniel B. Wallace. And it's beyond the basics because this is real deep when you look into the Greek language. This is not our natural language, right? So you have to actually do your study. But on page 564, he says that this is a very rare technique used by writers. It's very rare, particularly when you look at instances when it's used in the Bible. Now, at the same time, though, I want you to just briefly look at some verses previously that Paul wrote. Compare, for instance, verses 17 and 23 to 25. Read those verses right now and look how Paul is talking about our glorification. Because we can all admit here we're, we haven't been glorified yet. Everyone knows it. We haven't been given our glorified bodies. We will do that when we are in the presence of our Lord. We'll have new bodies. We'll be glorified. But is Paul, is Paul writing in verses 17 to 23 to 25 that it's already been done? No. He's writing in a future tense. He says, verse 17, that we may also be glorified together. Verses 23, at the end of it. Um, we're waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. And then he goes on to about waiting for it. So to me, it's confusing of why would Paul change his writing technique and then all of a sudden use this rare occurrence of writing in past tense like it was the future tense. It doesn't make sense to me. So for those whom he foreknew, well, last week we briefly, I just indicated this for, this preposition, or this conjunction, you could say, because another word could be because. If you write because, well, it's got to refer to something you said previously, right? So what did he say previously? Remember that marvelous verse that we covered? Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God to those who are the cord according to his purposes. Now Paul's writing to some Gentiles, but the church in Rome, who he hasn't seen yet, so they haven't had much exposure to really the, the truth of what salvation actually is and what God has actually done for them. And there is a mixture of Jews and Gentiles in the Roman church at that time. We know that. But my question is, how do they know? Paul hasn't referenced it previously in, in the, the, the eight chapters that we've gone through so far. How do they know? And so my answer to that is, well, because in times past, whom God had an intimate relationship with, to them. Think of all those people. Think of Moses. 
Think of Abraham, Isaac, uh, Jacob, and so on and so on. Think of all the prophets. Think of a David. Think of all the people that we read about in the Old Testament. Or think about them. What did he do for them? He predestined them to be conformed to the image of his son. So that Jesus would be the firstborn among many brethren. To them, he called them. To them, he justified them. And to them, he even glorified them. That's how I interpret this passage. That, to me, makes the most sense. Now, be careful on this word predestined. It doesn't necessarily mean that, pre, that God, which means determined, predetermined, predestined. But think of the word predestined, destined. It comes from the word destiny. What did pre, God predetermine before the end of, be, sorry, before the beginning of the world? What did he predetermine? He predetermined that anyone who is a, a child of his would be conformed into the image of his son. Did you know that when you die, provided you trust Jesus Christ right now, that you are actually going to be just like Jesus Christ? John, in his letters, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, for we will be like him. And so we touched on that last week, and I'm not going to get into that um, due to time. But one thing that I would like you to draw your attention to, uh, before I do that actually, I, I, I'm going to repeat this illustration just to really, because um, to me this is the best illustration that I've, I've found. Think of a plane. A pr plane has a destination. That destination has been predetermined. It's been decided that that's where the plane is going to go. Even the breakfast, the meals, they have been predetermined. Everything. Now, does it mean that those who board the plane, have, have they been predetermined to be on the plane? No. It just means that the plane has been predetermined to go to that destiny. And so therefore, that's how I take salvation. Anyone, whosoever, can come onto the plane. Whosoever can receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour. It hasn't been predetermined. It's not like God has um, chosen you, 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 but not them. Anyone can come. He's provided a way for us to come to board on the plane. It's available to anyone who's willing to believe it, who's willing to accept it. But once you hop on that plane, well, you're all going to be on a ride, aren't you? You're going to have the ride of your life. And the overall destination... Wow, just you wait and see. You're going to be just like Jesus Christ. Oh my goodness. Just the thought of that. And some people would say, what? Jesus Christ? You are going to be like Jesus Christ? Yeah, that's what we're told. Before that happens, we're on a ride. God's desire is that we keep on conforming closer and closer to the image of Christ, that we be Christ-like. Unfortunately, we don't do as good a job as that as we should. 
But that's the overall desire of God, is it not? And regardless of how far you get, your destination doesn't change. You're still going to be like him. The other thing that... I didn't include the slide, actually. The other thing that I just want you to take note of... I wish I underlined it, sorry. I just deleted it. So that... So that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. So take note of the tense of that verb. Would be. Future tense. When you read the Old Testament, and they're always talking about the Messiah, it's always in future tense. Christ is already the preeminent one. He's already the firstborn for us. But was he in the Old Testament? Or was it something that they were looking forward to? For me, it makes sense that Paul would write so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Jesus is already the firstborn among many brethren for us. But was he for the Old Testament saints? Was he? It's another indication to me that Paul's referring to something that has happened in times past that they would be aware of, which reinforces the, the, the notion that we should know that God works all, to, all things together for good. And so verse 30, we finalise on, I don't have to spend too much time on, I'm actually doing well for time, um, since we've covered all this. This is what God is, uh, sorry, this is what Paul has covered in the, in the last few chapters, which we've been going through verse by verse. So I, I do suggest you, you hop onto Spotify or any pretty much major podcast, except Apple. Don't do Apple Podcasts, you won't find us there. Where you can look up these messages. We, we talked about um, God calling people, God justifying people. But what's Paul talking about right now in Romans chapter 8? I don't think he has stopped talking about our glorification. In fact, he probably stops about glorification because the next few verses from 31 to the end of the chapter, he's just reinforcing the concept of why we should believe that we are going to be glorified. Because nothing can actually separate us from his love. Nothing. And then... We're going to be getting into more of this reformed versus non-reformed because Romans chapter 9, wow. You think, if you think this is deep, then that's going to be a little bit deeper. Okay? Because this is the major chapter that um, is on the, the forefront of the debate when we talk about, did God choose you even before you were born? Or did he not? <clears throat> And so we'll be getting more into this. But moreover, whom he, he predestined. Again, any of us, all of us, who have trust Jesus Christ, that his sacrifice on the, on the cross is what takes my place because it should be my death that is the payment for my sin. But Jesus took that 
death on himself. That sacrifice he put on himself. That's the good news. Because I deserve it. But he did it for me. If I believed on that, then he's predestined me to be glorified, to be conformed into the image of Christ. But take note of these things. Whom he predestined, he also called. He did call them. Remember, we don't... I said this last week, I think. In order for us to love... No, it was a week before. In order for us to love God, he has to reveal to us something to love. It's just like, in order for us to receive the gift, he has to actually present the gift. In order for us to accept his forgiveness, he actually has to convict me. He has to make me realize that I actually need forgiveness. And this is the role of the Holy Spirit with the world. The Holy Spirit's role is to convict the world. Just think of when you got saved. And this is the danger with the prosperity gospel. Because there's lots of preachers this morning saying, hey, come to Jesus because he will give you health. Because he will make you wealthy. He's the answer to all your problems. But very rarely do they say, come to Jesus because, well, he's the only one that can save you. <laughs> because you need saving. So you remember that verse, we love him because he first loved us. Well, we're not going to love him until we know that he did love us. We have to respond to something. And that's what I believe is a calling, which is, again, a de debatable issue with what this word actually is because a Reformed theologian would say, this calling is one that we call an internal effectual calling, which means it's irresistible. You can't resist the calling of God. Once God convicts you, once God... Um, pretty much tells you to believe in Jesus, you can't resist it. It's effectual, which I don't believe in. I believe we can resist it because I actually resisted it for quite a while. But someone might say, but you eventually accepted it. But I still resisted it. I think of Jonah. He resisted God's calling for a while. Now, God did some things to make him wake up, but... It's still resistible. He doesn't force it upon you. I don't believe that for a second. Because then I ask the question, what kind of love is that? If he forces his love on us. If it's, if it's irresistible. So I don't, I don't I just, this calling is just, to me, you need something to respond to. God makes that happen. And for those who did that, okay, he justified. We've gone through justification in previous chapters. I'm not going to go through it again other than that. I love that um, uh, simple meaning that it's just God treats me and declares me as a person is that it's just if I'd never sinned. 
that's quite phenomenal. But how interesting is it that how many Christians actually believe that? He treats you and declares you to the point where it's just if you had never sinned. But if I do something wrong, I think God's angry with me. How many people believe that? Is that justification? Is God declaring you and treating you like it's just? So it's like God's holding my sins against me. And so I have to make sure that I confess them, 1 John 1, 9, in order to be continually forgiven. So it's like our forgiveness from God is progressive. It doesn't make sense. It's either God has forgiven you of everything or he hasn't. It's not God forgives you one, one, one sin, by, uh, sin by sin. He's done it all on the cross. Do you think when he was dying on the cross, he knew or he just died for those sins up to the point where you would accept him as his saviour? Or do you think he died, he knew about every single sin that you were going to commit and he died for all of it? So he justified us. It's a legal term. And we need to know that we're justified. And then he also glorified us. So I believe the saints that have gone before us, they're up in heaven with their glorified bodies. I believe that. I believe they're experiencing their true salvation and the presence of the Lord is with them. The final thing I have to say is, which I believe is what Paul's saying, if he did it for them, if he did it for these guys, don't you think he'll do it for you? If he did it for these guys, he will do it for you. So be assured of that. So what are we talking about? Get back to what Paul is addressing. Paul is addressing this present world, this fallen world. He's addressing the suffering that we're going through. Reread verses 18 to 27 again. And then conclude it with 28 to 30. And then go beyond that and say, Nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. It's foolproof. Not even you can separate yourself from the love of God. And that's what we're going to get through in future weeks. If he did it for these guys, he's going to do it for you. So when you, right now, are tempted to think about what your week has been like, and maybe you're tempted to think what it's going to be like, Think of the hope that we have. There's more to this world. There's more to it. We have a destination, and that destination is guaranteed. Praise God. Let's rejoice with that this morning and have it firm in our hearts. Easy to do it now. As you go Monday morning, wake up. Oh, that's another, that's another story, isn't it? Have it firm. Meditate on it. Let's praise God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for guarantees. Thank you, Lord, that for assurance of salvation. Thank you for security. Oh, Father, I just think of all these people, all these Christians that believe that they can lose their salvation. What a roller coaster ride that would be on. 
not fully understanding your love, not fully comprehending the, the width and depth and, and just the overall immensity of it, Father God. Help that to be firm in our minds and our hearts as we know the enemy will come through us this week and probably try to accuse us of things, try to get us down, try to get us to give up. Help us, Lord, to just keep our focus on you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.